a Mitch and Jeremy exclusive. Are you ready? On air. Online. On your smart speaker and wherever you stream. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. The Mitch LaFon and Jeremy White Show. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews and episodes on demand now. Subscribe so you don't miss any of it. All right. Well, look, let's get right into it. Uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee Jeff Skunkbacks has got his first ever solo record coming out. Available June 17th via BMG. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your music. Lots of stuff to cover. Uh, really stoked to talk to the one, the only, Jeff Skunk Baxter. How you doing, sir? Thank you, sir. How are you? We're good. We're good. Uh, first off, just uh, real quick, uh, obviously a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. Uh, Dolly Parton just got inducted. It was announced today she's going to be joining the class of 2022. Of course, you performed with her. Um, any words for, for Dolly? And what was it like performing with her back in the day? Yeah. Well, I guess it was my, um, I'd have to say it was my my induction into If I Go to Heaven, uh, what I should expect because working with Dolly Parton is like working with an angel. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And he, and of course he was on, uh, on that great song nine to five, which is as classic a song as you're ever going to get. I mean, come on. It's iconic. Right. <laughs> totally. When you were in that session, oh. did you, I was just going to say, when you were in that session, did you know that it was going to be as big as it was? No. Uh, again, you know, as a session guy, you go in, do what you got to do. And uh, you be as professional as uh, obviously as you can. You're ever really, you never, well, once in a while, you know, some artists you work with, you know, that there's going to be a lot of, a lot of energy behind it, but uh, it was just fun. I had a great time. Yeah. Was that one of the yeah. sessions where you had tons of fun in? Like, I'm sure you've had so many sessions over the years where it's just like blah. <laughs> well, she brought cookies and, 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 and cakes. And I mean, just, it, <laughs> It was more like a, a, a party and maybe we'll like a reception and a party and maybe we'll do a record. Yeah. Yeah. She had like a vibe going like it was like kind of yeah, oh, I, it's just wonderful. I can imagine yeah. some artists are just about the business and like she comes in with cakes and stuff and it's like it does add to the funness of the session, I guess. Well, she's so personable. And again, she's she's really like an angel. She's just a person that exudes uh, wonderfulness and kindness and personality right she does um let me ask you this your your new album of course speed of heat comes out in june it is 50 years since a can't buy a thrill with uh, steely dan it, it is your first <laughs> solo album talk to me a, a little bit about waiting 50 years well i well, see, 50 years since Can't Buy a Thrill. And then, of course, I was in a couple of other bands in Before. between. Yeah. Um, but I always thought that it, there was something slightly disingenuous about it. As soon as you leave a very successful band, you go out and make a solo album. Right. Mm. And number one, I just thought you might need some time to percolate, maybe like a good wine. And also, uh, busy time. I mean, between being a kind of a studio rat for so many years and producing records and then uh, doing a lot of guitar, not only guitar repair, but guitar customizing and working with companies like Fender and Gibson and Roland. Uh, and plus my day job, um, I just really didn't have a lot of time. So right. I just thought I would wait. And it has been a labor of love and, and it has been a long time coming. My uh, music partner, CJ Vanston, who is the guy that I've been working with on this, on this project, incredible musician. Um, we look back at the track sheet and the first track that we cut for this was 1989. Wow. So we're just sort of, you know, now that the, the penny jar is full, now it's time to roll up the pennies and, <laughs> see what we got you know? let me ask you just real one thing real quick about the being a studio musician back then of course uh there was you and there was also steve lukather that was also on a lot of albums was there a sense of competition amongst all of the guitarists that were looking for between you and, and steve and some of the others or did you have sort of your team and he had his team and how did that work well I mean, there's always competition in the sense that there's 
a thousand people trying to get that one spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, which is, I think is good because it weeds out the, the, the chaff and creates a situation where only the best uh, get the job, frankly. And as far as competition between players, myself and Tim May and Luke and Jay Graydon and you know, Mitch Holder and the guys, you know, we all we all did the sessions. Um, not really. There's always the thing in the back of your mind that you always want to be 100 percent, 110 percent on. Mm-hmm. But no, as a matter of fact, it's, it was quite a community, quite a, a close knit you know, tribe of, of studio loonies. <laughs> right. But wasn't it also a difference in styles too? I mean, you had Michael Lando and uh, you had Steve with the big Bradshaw racks and all those clean process guitar tones. And I mean, like there's so many different styles when it comes to session players. I mean, I don't think it would be competitive in the end because everybody has their own thing. Well, you have your own thing as part of your portfolio, but you also have to have a, a a full quiver of capabilities across the board. Yeah. I mean, take the nine to five. I mean, supposedly I'm a rock guitar player, but that was a country tune. Right. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you just have to be able to do whatever it is. Uh, I did a lot of work with Tommy Tedesco, and he certainly uh, schooled me in the art of, Okay, they want a mandolin. Grab your twelve string, put a capo on it, and then you know, play mandolin. Right. Uh, have just have your have your capabilities at your in your pocket and and and, and right close by. So it's it's what you need. It's what's needed. It's yeah, I guess you just have to be as versatile as you possibly can in that situation. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I I kind of noticed when we finished. This, this album um, to be able to play a number of different styles. Uh, one minute, you know, play some rock. Next minute, play pedal steel. You know, the next minute, be playing sort of a kind of a jazz fusion vibe. Yeah. yeah. Right. I loved your version of Apache on this latest record. The guitar tone sounds great. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was the whole impetus to do a solo record because I always wanted to record that song. I just love that song. I mean, first of all, it's a classic dance floor filler, and then you just come and kind of reimagine it in a way. Uh, talk about the arrangement and how you came up with the whole thing for it. Well, I loved, always loved the song as a kid. Yeah. You know, I I remember when the Jorgen Ingeman version came out, and then the Shadows, and then the Ventures did it. Um, it it has a quiet elegance and it has a quiet power to it um whoever wrote it uh somehow or other i think captured the nobility of of the apache Mm -hmm. and but it was it was muted and it was subtle i thought what the heck you know in the same way as i did my old school i thought let's let's pump some uh, energy into this yeah and it it holds up. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I just love the song. Like yeah. Say. And your version is almost like a rock and Western version of it, too. It's it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. We always crack up here because I. I was in lunacy. Right. I was going to say, we always crack up because I come. I actually live on a native reservation. We're Mohawks over here. And whenever we'd have like really? an, uh, we'd all, whenever we'd have like an outside DJ come in, they'd always be like, oh, don't worry. I'm not going to play the Apache song for you guys. And we're like, no, play it. Like, we'll be packing the dance floor, jamming to that shit. Please, right. <laughs> oh, it's it's, it's like, and also, you know, don't play Cherokee people. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is one of the coolest songs ever recorded. Yeah. Uh, a white DJ comes in and plays Redbone, come and get your love. And they're like, I'm not racist. Really? Like, no, we love it. Play it. <laughs> um, yeah. Let me uh, let me just bring you back to, to being the, a, a session musician for a second. When you're you, you've played, of course, with Dal Bello, who's our, our great Canadian artiste up here. But when you're playing with Judy Collins and Rod Stewart and Steely Dan and Leo Sayer and Joe Carker and Denise Willem, all these different genres and different styles, do they just hire Jeff to do Jeff? Or do you go in and learn something new? And does it make you a better guitarist at the end of the day? You go, you know what? 
now I've been able to do a nine to five song. Now I've been able to do something with Joe Cocker. Now I am now Jeff, a much better, much more rounded guitarist. Or do you just do Jeff? Yes. Yes. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> it depends again on what they call you for. You, you one, one day you walk in, you've got a stack of music. Say you're doing a, a movie soundtrack. Everything is written. Everything is cute. That's what you do. Right. Um, sometimes <clears throat> you walk in, music's written out, and then there's 16 free bars, and they say we want you to play a solo, like one of the, the Donna Summer stuff, uh, hot stuff and bad girls. And they said we want you to do what you do. Okay, that's fine too. Sometimes they don't know what they want. Right. And you dig down deep into your experience and say, you know, let's see, I, I got a, I got an idea. Let, let's try this. Mm -hmm. And you, you don't do it with, with the, the only ego is to perform. Right. The, uh, the other part of it is, is just to do your best to uh, reach into your toolkit. So I'd say it's all of the above that you mentioned. Mm. Was that you playing the clean guitar part on, on Hot Stuff Bad Girls? I'm sorry. Is was that you playing the clean guitar part on like Bad Girls? That dan 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 dan. Is that you? Uh, yeah. Wow. And Bad Girls, Bad Girls was the first number one record that ever had a guitar synthesizer on it. Right. So the solo on that is is the is the prototype of the rolling guitar synthesizer. Wow. I brought it in. It was all on a piece of plywood, and I had a. You know, the, the thing you put on cakes to keep the flies off. And I just brought the whole thing in. Georgia wanted to try something new. Um, but wow. Damn, that's really cool. I mean, that's one of the songs. I mean, whenever I DJ a wedding or something, we have like a 12-minute mix of like the two that's hot stuff and bad girls together. And like, I always love that solo in there. So it's interesting that that was actual synthesizer. Well, I did that on a guitar I bought for 35 bucks. Wow. So Damn. So, uh, what the heck? You know, that and a six-pack of Bud and a Fender Deluxe Reverb, and let's go. <laughs> right. And it creates those iconic sounds. I mean, what more do you want? Hey, you know, it's just where you go. Um, and you, you mentioned the thing uh, about being a studio musician and the judgment. Uh, there's a story that I, I do like to tell. Gary Katz, who's a producer for Steely Dan, called me in for a session. He had recorded a, a, a young lady. He pretty much finished the record, but he said, Skunk, I want you to come in, bring all your stuff. I'm going to play all this for you. And I want to make sure, you know, tell me what we need. Uh, which, again, is calling on your judgment and experience. So I listened to the whole record. I said, Gary, it's fine. You don't need anything. And he said, that's why I pay you triple scale. Yeah. So the idea is maybe, maybe there isn't anything. It's what you don't play sometimes. Yeah, it's less the is more. that you leave and the judgments that you make to leave room, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because a lot of the greatest songs you've ever listened to, I mean, like, the beauty is in the space between the tracks. Uh, well, the folks that do a lot of music, they know, they understand the clave. Mm -hmm. That is the whole thing. It's, uh, it's all wonderful if you want to, you know, unload a bucket full of hemi semi demi quavers on people. That's, mm -hmm. I suppose that's nice. I'm not a big fan of guitar trampoline. I could do it, but it's yeah. not kind of my thing. Right. I think the most most important is to leave room for the listener to to get into what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, you can push them away, you know, with a huge tsunami of of notes, or you can leave spaces for them to begin to interface with what you do. Right. Yeah. I mean, you look at a lot of the guitar players of the 80s. I mean, Eddie Van Halen's my favorite guitar player of all time, but I can only take so much of that crazy playing. I mean, I go listen to Dan Huff and I listen to Michael Landau and like, you know, those really cool guitar parts from studio sessions that are, you know, that stand out and just have that sound to them. Did you get caught up in the whole sort of gear slut guitar kind of angle? Like, Did the gear sort of take over for you at one point? Well, I'm a gear slut. Yeah. I build, I, I used to build guitars. I worked with Dan Armstrong for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, and to this day, everything I ever did is guaranteed for life. Cooch called me about a year ago 
Danny Korsmar and said, remember that Telecaster you did for me back in 1960, uh, 1963? Yeah. I said, well, <clears throat> Fender screwed it up. So can you put it back to the way you did it? <laughs> sure. Fine. Right. No, absolutely. So as a uh, definitely a gear slot, a guitar maniac, because I love the instrument. The work that I did with Roland, guitar synthesizer, the stuff I did with Fender and Gibson. Yeah. Uh, yeah, probably more of a gear slot than most folks. Right. And I mean, talking about guitars, I mean, Leo kind of perfected it, like right off the bat with the strats and the tellies. I mean, how do you feel guitars have progressed over time with manufacturing construction-wise? Well, certainly... Back in the day when I was working on 48th Street at Jimmy's right across from Manny's, mm -hmm. and this is back in the 60s, Yeah, you could buy a brand new Fender Stratocaster for $295 with the case. Damn. Now you can buy a brand new Squire Fender Stratocaster for $295 yeah. with the case. Right. right. What, has, what has advanced is the capability to build a quality instrument and not break the bank to make that kind of capability and quality available to a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. right. On the other hand, there is the whole vintage gear, you know, if it doesn't have 7,221.5 windings of number 41 wire and have an impedance of 5.2 K and yeah. the gauss on the Alnico fives. I mean, all, you know, yeah, okay, they, that's, they, that's it doesn't have this type of lube on the potentiometer. It's, <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I'm fine for that, too, because ultimately, yeah, there's some times when I don't want to rent just a car. I want to go out and get a 1966 GTO with a 383, you know, power pack. Yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Power. So um, I think there's something to be said for both for both sides. I think golfers are the same way with mm -hmm. their golf clubs. I think there are a number of people who have things that whatever it is, they inspire them. Right. Now, I did have a million guitars. Uh, I had about 400 guitars, and John Whistle had about 500. And one night at the Rainbow, I said to him, you know, we're like little kids. You know, you used to press your face up against the glass of the music store, and maybe someday, maybe someday I can get a Fender Stratocaster. Yeah. You know, but we went overboard, and we decided at that time, actually, to get rid of everything. Because why yeah. have a beautiful instrument that nobody's playing? Right. So to me, there's something weird about collecting a lot of guitars because they, sh they should be played. It's like artwork. Do you store it in the attic or do you put it up on your wall? You know, right. so people can see yeah. it. I completely agree. I don't know. That's just my. Well, listen, my you look thing. at uh, at uh, Brad Gillis or, or Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick, they've, they've got hundreds of guitars and I think they just sort of store them for, for posterity purposes. But hey. Yeah, I. I don't know. Again, everybody has their own, their let me, own um, thing. Let me quickly ask you about this. Uh, you know, when we think of, of rock stars have had 50 years careers, we, you know, we, we think of, of uh, maybe they want to retire, maybe they want to just take it, take it easy. Uh, you know, they're just uh, great musicians. But you have this secondary career as a missile defense expert. Um, explain that to me. How, how does Jeff go from playing with Steely Dan and Dolly Parton to now uh, working for the D D D Department of Defense? Well, the, the, the thumbnail story right. is um, I wrote a paper right. on converting a Navy weapon system, the Aegis weapon system, which is an air defense carrier battle group and air defense system mm. uh, right. to defend against air breathers, meaning uh, aircraft and things that use air to for their propulsion systems right um and so i i had spent a lot of time reading defense magazines anyway especially because i was looking to the defense industry for cutting edge technologies for the work i was doing with the musical instrument companies ah. we were just beginning to get into digital technology uh new um uh, ways to store data to move data to process it in the digital world right. and the defense contractors, defense companies were uh, cutting edge. I mean, that was where the universities, the national labs and the, the Department of Defense, DARPA, the Defense Advanced yeah. Research Project mm -hmm. um, agency. So as I 
began to read this stuff, I began to sort of put something together in the back of my mind. And then I spoke um, when I was in England with Nick Cook. Nick Cook was the uh, great guy. He was the senior uh, editor, aviation editor for James Defense Weekly, which was a magazine that I was reading as well at the time. Mm. And he gave me some information about about tracking the space shuttle with an S-band radar. The S-band is that particular uh, frequency band that that the U.S. Navy uses for Aegis. And so I thought if if you track the space shuttle, I wonder if you could track a warhead. So I went to a couple of buddies of mine at uh, JPL. So I got some math I needed to do for me and they did it. And they said, this is kind of weird. What we found is whatever you're looking to do, track something that's moving at 17,500 miles an hour and has this particular radar cross section. You can do it. What are you doing? And I said, I'll, I'll get back to you. So <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote the paper, handed it to a congressman friend of mine who gave it to the vice chairman of the Armed Services Committee, who then called my congressman friend Dana and said, what is this guy with Raytheon or Lockheed? No, he's a guitar player for the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> so I get a call from Kurt Weldon saying, hey, uh, would you accept the position on the Armed Services Committee to do a missile defense? And then it just started from there. I've been involved in a number of things, um, everything from the technology to wargaming to unconventional warfare. And it's been a great, it's been a great run. And then in 1993, after the first attack on the World Trade Center, I got a call from the intelligence community saying, hey, we now think that law enforcement and the intelligence community needs to talk to each other. We might have been able to prevent this. Uh, we have plenty of spooks, but no cops. And I was with LAPD Reserve at the time right. on their anti-terrorism committee. And I had all the clearances based on the missile defense stuff. So I said, sure. So I've been involved in in uh, serving my country for since 93. 93. That's let me, amazing. Uh, let me ask you two questions. Uh, you mentioned that part of this was uh, for music technology. You wanted to see how we could get more technology into music. Now that we have the Pro Tools and all this stuff, is that how you prefer to record now? Or are you still sort of like, eh, you know what, going into the studio and laying it live is, is probably still the best way. Are, are you sort of full technology when it comes to recording? Or is there a sort of a, a romantic uh, approach of doing it old school? A love affair with tape. Yeah. Um, I don't have a protocol. Okay. Again. It's it's whatever makes sense at the time. Um, I I think I'm not a big fan of digital recording in a sense. I think we're it's going to be a long way before we ever get to the point where your brain could actually decode uh, the 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 inherent problems with uh, the way that a digital recording reproduces music. Mm. But on the other hand. It certainly is a very fast, efficient way to record. Uh, it's got great dynamic range. It's like word processing. You yeah. can move very quickly, do a lot. Right. So, I, again, I don't have a, I don't have a, a preference. Sure, would I like to sit <clears throat> in the studio with a two-inch tape, twenty-four track machine, you know, with uh, tube amplifiers and stuff? Yes, because there's no doubt about your slut or not that there is a very, very huge difference between the way those different technologies reproduce music and the way your brain decodes it. No, totally. And it's funny, like, you you look at, like, a normal, like, just a a 192 from Avid. I mean, like, Mont Lang was one of the first guys to go to a company and say, hey, could you modify this to make it sound less harsh in, like, the mids and all these things? And, you know, it's like you got uh, companies like Black Lion Audio doing fully modified 192s. And I mean, you can just basically take a run of the mill uh, interface at this point, and get them modified to try and sound a little bit better. <laughs> There's, it's it's well, almost it's like really a, all about the sampling rate until you get the mm-hmm. sampling rate to be infinite. You can slice an orange into thinner and thinner pieces, but it's still not an orange. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I recall. There was an experiment at Stanford University many years ago where they played digital and analog verses of music to, to young, to, you know, small babies mm-hmm. and to uh, uh, adults that had um, Alzheimer's and, and, and some different uh, mental challenges. 
And when they played the digital versions, the babies started to cry and the adults began to rock back and forth. They played the analog versions, the babies went to sleep and the adults were calmed down. So there's no doubt in my mind about the difference, but we do what we do, you know? Yeah, it sounds like a, it sounds a lot like Mitch when I put on Post Malone versus uh, Van Halen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, just real quick, uh, Jeff Skunk Baxter, uh, first ever solo record, Speed of Heat, coming out June 17th. You can pre-order it now wherever you get your music. Um, of course, we mentioned Eddie Van Halen. You know, Back in the uh, 70s, you worked with Ted Templeman. You were kind of like the guy that brought in Michael McDonald. You were kind of responsible for them. Of course, they worked with um, Michael later on in the 84 record. Just at the time when Ted Templeman was going to be working with Van Halen, did he ever talk about them in the studio? And uh, as a guitar player, like, what did you think of Eddie Van Halen when he hit the scene? Well, I thought Eddie was a, a genius. I was a brilliant guitar player. He had that perfect combination of technique, imagination, um, love for improvisation, injected with a bit of thermonuclear energy. And <laughs> I don't know, it was a hard, hard to beat. Right. Th yeah. Did you see Pretty him fun. as like competition? Like, did you have to up your game as a performer? I don't think I ever thought about it that way. Mm. I mean, I, I, I guess the question was, why would I need to up my game? I, I got more work than I can, I can do. Yeah. I'm a happy guy. I'm playing in a bunch of different bands. And uh, frankly, a lot of my, con con uh, my um, concentration uh, went into pedal steel. Mm -hmm. because I just think that's the greatest stringed instrument ever invented by mankind right. in the it's whole gorgeous. universe. Uh, so not, not, no, I never, I never felt like I was competing with anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there's a healthy desire to certainly hone your craft and to be capable among your peers and any studio musician would think that, but no, I never, I never felt, uh, as a matter of fact, I remember getting on stage, and in, in Japan one time with um, um, uh, oh gosh the, the Paganini of guitar players um, uh, help me here oh geez that's a lot of people uh, Pagliaro <laughs> Pagliaro uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll think of it in a second Dutch yeah. guitar player Michael Schenker no 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 Schenker. He's German no, he's German Who's Dutch or Swedish or Yngwie Malmsteen? Yes, there you go. There you go. Um, and because he invited me on the stage to play, and I was sure, you know. Well, the man is a—he is the Paganini of guitar players. I mean, this man is—is—is is, is, his capabilities are beyond most human beings. So the question is now: now it's my turn. What am I going to do? Right. So I thought about it for a second, stepped out, and I guess we were in a, in a, there was a kind of a pause. So I just bent the G string up a whole tone and held it. Just the whole, it the whole more. time? <laughs> and then I held it some more. Oh. And now the tension is, but then I held it a little bit more. And now the audience is starting to react and I held it a little bit more. And after a while, they're on their feet screaming. It's, it's, it's all about how you approach the situation. There's many different ways to do it. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that is great. That is great. Oh, I, I want to finish on one last question, and it is uh, sort of the, uh, the silly question of the day. But being a defense consultant and, and the military and stuff uh, and doing the outer space, and all, have we been visited by aliens? Have we? <laughs> I really have no comment. Um, that's, that's a yes. <laughs> I, I do think that there is a slight uh, disconnect between what people think uh, a UFO is. Right. Uh, I would I would posit and I would tell people to maybe to go back and look at their history, because after World War Two, the technology that came out of Germany was very advanced swept wing aircraft yep. and when uh, operation paperclip brought over uh, werner von braun and his team they were responsible ultimately for creating the saturn V uh, rocket and getting 
you know, the United States to the moon. So what, and again, I have to be very careful here in terms of, you know, what I can talk about, Right. but let's just say that what you see or what people see may be uh, manifestations of advanced technologies that existed or were invented by human beings and not piloted by little green men from outer Got space. Mm-hmm. That said, uh, if we do live in an infinite universe, there is no argument that there has to be another, uh, many forms of life. Because again, if it's infinite, there has to be everything. And if there has to be everything, then there, then there isn't nothing. <laughs> right. There is, yeah. Yeah. Right. And and if 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 we came to be, then somebody somewhere else or something somewhere else has has to come to. Anyway, it's 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 one of well, those you just replace oxygen in a, in a carbon-based life form. You just replace the oxygen with silicon, and and it works out very well. Yeah. You know, it's different, but it works out very well. <laughs> there you go, uh, Jeremy. Well, geez, uh, this is incredibly interesting. This is super fun. Skunk Baxter, Speed of Heat. You can pre-order it now. Coming out on June 17th, uh, wherever you get your music. Are you going to do the vinyl and the CD and the whole thing, or are you going to stick to the iTunes and streaming? Vinyl comes out in September. We we, we did a double album. We, we couldn't figure out what to take off the off vinyl because you're limited, obviously, by the mechanics of, of, of vinyl. Yeah. And the record company said, well, then let's just do a double album. Perfect. And we said thank you. So it'll be out in September. So you're gonna do the whole gatefold so all you packaging. Two beer analog freaks out there, you know, <laughs> with your pure cartridges and your uh, Dynakit two preamps and your, uh, you know, all your all your you know, your Macintosh tube amps and your and your JBL forty three elevens will will have a treat. Perfect. <laughs> Mitch is still the CD guy, so there you go. CD is the greatest technology ever for music. I'm just going to say it's that. It's pretty cool. No, it's very cool, especially the dynamic range. I mean, you yeah. have to be careful when you when you master a record for vinyl because you could you can actually make mistakes and the needle will jump right out of the grooves. Right. You know, I mean, there's something about dragging a rock across a piece of plastic that has certain limitations, I guess. And the <laughs> yeah, CD has a wonderful dynamic range. And but, as you get to that last track on the vinyl, it starts losing some of that fidelity because they, they're, they're stretching the, you know, it, it's not as precise. As oh, yeah, it's very mechanical, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Thank you, sir. Absolute pleasure. And uh, please, let's do this again if you anytime. Well, I really appreciate your hospitality. Thanks for having me on. And um, I hope folks enjoy the record. I, I certainly, I guess we call it a record. Yep, um, but yes, I I enjoyed the recording project. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> way to put it. <laughs> As we say in Montreal, merci bien. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. It was great to meet okay. you. Take care. Now back to the Mitch Lafon and Jeremy White show. Awesome dude. How are you, Mitch? Right. It's been, the last time I saw you was at the uh, SOH yeah. show in Toronto. Montreal, Montreal, yeah. Montreal, I mean. And uh, I remember being not well at that show, and I think I may have had COVID, but didn't know what it was. Yeah, it's weird. We saw you backstage really briefly before the show, and it was sort of like a high and by. I'm sick. I'm going to the bus. And we were like, yeah, you go. (laughs) Dude, there was no voice. I didn't have a voice. Yeah. Yeah, And and that uh, that was was the last show before the COVID shutdown that we saw. So, yeah. Yeah, that was the last show. It was just, uh, it was wild. But then... I was on tour. I felt like a, a flu, but like a turbo flu, but I was like getting through everything, but I lost my voice that day. But then, uh, yeah, then I got better. Then we went to Europe and then the whole COVID thing hit. And then everyone had to pull the plug on their tour and go home. It just was a mess. Yeah. yeah. Well, but well. hopefully things are getting better and, and we're in onto a better thing. So. Yeah, well, the cases are going back up over here, so we're gonna see what's gonna happen with that. <laughs> good, good news. Good. Yeah, news. it's always good news. All right, look, yeah. it's always good news when we got Derek Sherinian on Zoom. His brand new record, The Vortex, coming out on July first. You can pre-order now wherever you get your music. A brand new music video for The Scorpion now streaming on YouTube, which is phenomenal. Uh, this record features some incredible special guests as well, which we want to talk all about. Uh, welcome back to the show, the one, the only Derek Sherinian. What's going on? 
Oh, it's all good, man. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I appreciate it. First of all, every time we mention another artist, like your name comes up, Derek Sharania, keyboards, they always say, oh, you got to ask him about the Van Halen backyard party. Because yeah, that's all just the time. It's, 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 it always comes up, which is kind of funny. Like, I don't know if it's like people are busting our balls to ask you about it or if it's like like a thing, you know? No, it's a, it's a, it was a very bucket list moment for me and, and everyone else that was involved with it. The story goes, there was a band called the Star Effers that used to play on the Sunset Strip. It was my friend Stefan Adika. Yeah. And then also um, John Karabi, Brian Tishy on drums. I mean, so there's players and Eric Dover from the band Jellyfish yeah. was in it as well. And so they used to play down there. And somebody, I think it was Eddie Van Halen's wife at the time, Hi, saw the band playing live and hired them for this party that was going to be at the Van Halen house. And my friend Stefan knows how much I loved um, Van Halen. So he pulled me in on the gig to play. And so there was a rehearsal at the Van Halen house the day before. And he wasn't originally supposed to play, but he saw the band. And then all of a sudden he goes, I want to play too. So he grabs his guitar. I'm going, holy shit, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> so we're yes. rehearsing at Eddie Van Halen's house. And so we, we played through a few, you know, classic Van Halen songs. And there was a little bit of a break. And I don't know what became of me, but I went to Ed and I said, I go, I go, Ed, will you show us the studio while, while we're on break? He goes, yeah, come on. I go, Tishy, come on. My nice. Oh, that's Ed, awesome. So he took me and Brian into the, into the studio, and we were in there at least 20 minutes, 25 minutes, just the three of us. And he's like rattling off stories, and I'm looking around. I see the shark guitar on the wall from Women and Children First. Yeah. I see like all the masters like dated 70 or, or early eighties and the mm -hmm. vault. And it was just absolutely amazing. And then we played the gig <laughs> the next night and it was just a, an amazing night. When you're in the studio, cool. did you get to see like the original OB eight that he used and stuff like that? Oh, I, I didn't see the OB eight, but he had a, a piano in, in there and a couple other, uh, things but just seeing that shark guitar was just unbelievable yeah just, you man, i would have just pulled it off the wall and started playing fools like right away <laughs> oh that would have been great and then uh no it was it's always been a dream of mine to play with him and even though it was like a crazy uh scenario there's i have yeah. the pictures to prove it and and the story to tell and i'm just very grateful it happened hey well more do you want story. you got to play with eddie van halen at his backyard barbecue i mean come on yeah Oh, it was amazing. Absolutely and amazing. The other thing is, is uh, Derek, when he does his solo parts in, in shows, mm -hmm. a lot of times it'll be a Van Halen song that he does on keyboard, which is very cool, right? I mean, oh, talk to thank about you. that. I always like to tip the hat to Big Ed, you know, of the uh, Spanish Fly. Sometimes I used to do it in its entirety, but, but I'll just do like excerpts from it and excerpts yeah. from um, Eruption. And I pull out little things, little Randy Rhodes experts or excerpts to to uh, pay homage to my heroes. I'm just thinking, if you use like a volume pedal, and like, would you be able to do the swells from Cathedral on keyboard? Yeah, it not it doesn't track. It's kind of harder. Mm. Um, I can get close. I can get close. Oh, I nice. think I think Dar uh, Jeremy just threw down the gauntlet. That's a challenge for the next time. No, it's too. I mean, I can definitely do it. I have to just have to program the delay. <laughs> no, no, he was like, no, it's fuck you, Mitch. I can definitely different. do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's still a challenge. I, I, I'm still, uh, I'm still having the the challenge thrown down. Um, yeah. Let's just quickly talk about uh, Vortex. I mean, look at this list: Steve Stevens, Nuno Betancourt, Joe Bonamassa, Steve Lukather, Michael Schenker, Zach Weil, Ron Bumblefoothall. I mean, mm -hmm. come on, what what a guitar god record this is. Well, it just works out that a lot of my friends are are pretty famous players, but I really needed greatness in the guitar department on these songs. Simon and I really put a lot of uh, effort into the composition and it covers a lot of different musical ground. And there isn't really one person that's going to be able to play all of it and, and do it the way we want. So that's why we had to spread it out. Mm -hmm. We cast it like a movie, you know, it's like Clint Eastwood's not going to do a great in uh, some kind of you know, <laughs> romantic comedy, you want to use him where he's a badass and, and you want to just put everyone in the right role. Right. When you're working with uh, with Joe on this record, do, do you look at him and say, hey, uh, 
What about some BCC? Is it time for that? Is it time for a new black country? No, you know, everyone, uh, I mean, it gets brought up every once in a while. Like there's always an email like, I miss you guys. Yeah, we got to do this. And then uh, then a presidential term will pass by and nothing happens. So, <laughs> so I think it's been a presidential term since our last record. So hopefully uh, something might happen in the next, you know, couple of years. Yeah. Who knows? It, 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 it could certainly happen. Uh, in terms of uh, making these records, is this something that you want to uh, to to take on the road and, and have a Derek Sherinian, you know, an evening with Derek Sherinian tour? Well, in fact, what we're going to do is we have a couple of shows booked, but I'm not going to bill it Derek Sherinian. It's going to be Derek Sherinian and Simon Phillips. Right. And I think that that's a stronger... Because first of all, Simon is such a huge part of this uh, music and and the making of these records. It's really a, a dual dual effort, right, even right. though my name's on the record. And so, and I think it'll also help bring people into having Simon there. That being said, we have um, a show in Santa in Ventura, California, August 29th, and then we have a show in Armenia at a festival September 6th to get things started. And then we're looking into playing some. Uh, selected dates around i'd love to take this on the road and bumblefoot's going to be playing guitar nice and he's like one of the i mean he's such an amazing player but he's also the most versatile out of all the people on my record and he's the one guy that could actually play all of this stuff live what is it about working with Simon Phillips that just was a musical marriage right from the get-go? I mean, he's back on this record, co-producing, co-writing everything. What's so great well, about that collaboration? He's, you know, we started in the year 2000 on the Inertia record or 2001 or whatever it was. And, you know, he's been my favorite drummer for since I heard him on the Michael Schenker, the first Michael Schenker, uh, 1980. And then on Jeff Beck there and back, and then I was fortunate enough to play with him 20 years later on, on the Inertia record. And we just, we have a chemistry when we write, we, we both are into different things. He's more into jazzier stuff. I'm more into heavy stuff, but we find a common middle ground mm. and we just have really a great time writing and, and doing these records. So we just keep doing it and it'll be great to take it to the next level and play live with him Cause he's just, as good as it gets you know how does the writing process for this though i mean i mean like does he come in with a drum groove or like a program beat or something or you got like the mute like are you on a key like how does how does this work well simon plays keyboards <laughs> and he uh is able to play well enough where he can uh put his ideas into the computer into midi <laughs> and and so he'll either write a couple sections and show them to me. But most of the time I'm writing a, an idea or a couple sections and then I present them to Simon and then let him react. And then he does his thing to it. And then it's just a back and forth and either he'll, he'll start the process or I'll start it. And then on a couple songs on this record, we brought Steve Stevens in as well. And that's a good writing chemistry between the three of us. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's different each time, but it's it's great. I love working with Simon. It's it's always uh, he brings such experience and quality control to my records that I'm very grateful for. And, and There's guess, never going to be anything that slides by that's that's not you know kosher. Well, yeah, and I, and I guess you know I mean the power of collaboration is that these guys are going to take you somewhere that you weren't necessarily expecting sometimes or lead you oh, down a different uh -huh. road. A hundred percent. You know what? If I was an artist that everything I churned out was brilliant and I didn't need to uh, collaborate with anyone, that would be amazing. But I'm not that guy. I mean, <laughs> right. I recognize that that uh, two heads or three heads sometimes are better than one, especially if you have the right chemistry. There's a beauty in chemistry and synergy. Yeah. Talk about keyboards a little bit. I mean, keyboard technology, and it's just come so far through the last couple of decades. Uh, are you going like analog or are you you're going the digital route? No, I'm going analog. I'm going back to the timeless, warm analog sounds of the 70s and, uh, and early 80s. Like wow. I use some digital sounds on, on things every once in a while, but everything is pretty much now Hammond B3 piano. Uh, Moog or Mellotron, just these classic 
primary colors that'll be timeless. Yeah. They'll sound good in 1970. It'll sound good in 2020 and they'll sound good in uh, 2050. Yeah. It's, it's so funny. I mean, like so many people are using Mellotrons again, Calvin Harris in, in like EDM and all these guys, like they're going back to those vintage sounds and it's, it's kind of cool to hear it in music. Well, for strings, I mean, unless you're using orchestral sounds or whatever, the string sounds that are in most of these digital keyboards just sound cheesy. It has like a right. cheesy overtones to it. So instead of using that, I use Mellotron strings. And it just is much warmer and more classic, and yeah. it's just got that vibe, right? Yeah. Like it's just got that old got school, like that feel, dude. It's all about the vibe, and you want it to be timeless and and feel good. That's why yeah. I use these sounds, and it doesn't matter who I do a lot of sessions, whether it's White Snake or uh, an unknown artist, and all different styles. I use the same keyboards on all the same shit and it's mm -hmm. it's just my sound and it works on everything because yeah. it just is it's the real stuff when you redid a lot of the white stake stuff that's been coming out the last little while the david coverdale tell you like all right listen let's get rid of some of this fromage get rid of the cheese update the, the sound a little bit or were you tasked with sort of recreating a bit of that sound no he wanted all of that gone that was the whole purpose of bringing me in it was right. to bring in the um the hammond he wanted the john lord uh crunchy organ sound and and yeah. to get rid of all the tinkerbell stuff and so i happily obliged him and i've done six white snake records now so far wow and i'm pretty confident any keyboard stuff that he may do in the future he'll be calling me yeah which is always good you see i i like that you called it the tinkerbell stuff because i love that 80s kind of like you know uh, no hey ethereal kind of effects uh keyboard well, dude i love it too like i listen i played with billy idol and so there was a yeah. lot of that stuff in billy idol i used to have to recreate and i love cobra kai i watch it with my son yeah and all that music is total 80s and i i think it's perfect for uh you know that time but it's hard being a keyboard player because a it's it's the least desirable of of the rock instruments and it's the first one that everyone wants to attack and so it's very important you know coming up i never wanted to be that keyboard player with a guitar or having cheesy uh keyboard <laughs> sounds you know i wanted Are we to not a fan strong. of the guitar come on no. and i wanted to come in strong like uh like John Lord and just be classic and heavy and be able to blend in to be able to walk in with Zach wild and, and fucking crank and matches Marshall sound. Yeah. You know, you know, it's funny uh, and I won't name the bands, but there's a few bands or, or there, there seems to be this thing where the guitar solo is becoming the new in thing in 2022. And <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, I'm just like, could we please stop? <laughs> and just you know what? To each, to each their own. But what I've learned is in the last 30 years, there's video of me doing things that I wish didn't exist. And I think that uh, the guitar is probably one of those things that people that they may be doing it now, but they may look back at it in a few years. And be hey, look, Lady Gaga stuff. played the guitar at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, and that looked badass. So. No, well, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> if it's like Lady Gaga or someone, but if it's, I don't know, I don't look to each their own. It's right. just not for me. No, it's just that uh, there was a Canadian TV show for children here called The Doodle Bops, and, and the main character had a guitar, <laughs> and that's the only thing I see when I see guitar on stage. I just go, oh, it's The Doodle Bops. Uh, I will say that my favorite guitar ever is Shania Twain's band on the Up Tour. They would go out and play I'm Gonna Get You Good, and Hardy always had the white guitar, so I always thought that was cool. Oh, I, I haven't seen that, so... <laughs> Uh, uh, in terms of, of your work with KISS, I know we, we've, we've touched on this before, uh, just go back and, and talk to me about that experience because you were, for the lack of a better word, a rookie, uh, up and coming, and, and all of a sudden you're playing with Alice Cooper and Kiss. Uh, what did that mean for you in your career in terms of, of, you know, setting you on this path where, you know, 20 years, 30 years, people are still talking to you and interested and, and you're getting all these opportunities? Uh, well, it was, a, a you know, the thrill of a lifetime before you get your first big break. And it was so long ago. I mean, 89, I was, I just turned 23 years old wow. and I was living in um, Los Angeles and trying to, to get a gig. And there was just nothing, you know, there was no money. There was nothing happening. And uh, 
And then my friend Al Petrelli, who I went to Berkeley with, got hired for the musical director gig for Alice. And so he set up my audition and I went in and, and ended up getting the gig. And it was just such a huge thrill because you never know. I mean, you know in your heart that you, you want to make it and you're going to do whatever it takes to get that first big break, but it's still uncertain. It's still it's still considered a pipe dream. And everyone looks at you like, oh, he's determined, but it's a pipe dream. Until you get that first big credit, then it becomes real. It becomes validated. And in my mind, it was just such a huge uh, obstacle to overcome. But the biggest thing was that I felt once I got that first Alice Cooper trash gig, that everything was going to be smooth sailing career-wise. It's like, ah, I've, I've done my suffering and now it's all here and everything's just going to be cream and, and gravy. But, you know, that's I learned quickly after the tour ended when the uh, paycheck stopped that it's all the same shit. You just got to keep it rolling. Yeah. Hey, talking about Alice Cooper's trash, when you were performing that record live, did you have to recreate that iconic intro note from Poison or did you like get to do your own thing with it? Oh, no, we sampled it and triggered it. Oh no! And I have that. I have that sample to this day, and I've used it in other things where I sneak it in and layer stuff on top of it. No way! And, and every once in a while, like a very savvy fan with with sharp ears will hear it and go, "I hear that poison." <laughs> he has it from Cooper. And I, oh, that's amazing. Oh, Do you know what keyboard that came from? No, I think it was like a. a Composite of different sounds, like a backward guitar and and different oh. things that made that sound. I mean, it's a, it's a badass sound. I love it. Yeah. Next time we ask, next time we talk to Desmond Child, maybe we'll ask him see if he remembers how, we, how they did yeah. that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Vortex coming out on July first. You can pre-order now before you get your music. If you're hearing this after it came out, well, go buy it and download it. Uh, you got the uh, 180 gram white LP CD, CD digi pack, the digital record available as well. Uh, music videos online on Derek's YouTube channel. Too. I mean, just always great stuff. Uh, this record's phenomenal. Great guests, great musicianship. What more do you want, Derek? It was so great to chat with you. Guys, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate you uh, promoting the Vortex. Absolutely. Anytime, Derek. Just uh, keep us in mind anytime you got something coming out. Yeah. All Next right, time you're in Montreal, it'll be more than a high and buy. <laughs> All right. Hope. For sure. Next time, for sure. All right. You guys have a fantastic day. Cheers right. now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. An all-new episode of the Mitchell Fun and Jeremy White Show. Tuesday at noon. Available wherever you stream. Catch up on past interviews. Bonus content. And episodes on demand now. Visit YouTube.com slash Jeremy White Show. Follow Mitch and Jeremy on Twitter. Yeah, they're verified at Mitch LaFon and at Jeremy White MTL.